biased opinion. Uh, Two things to note before he comes up. First of all, do not be alarmed that he is not wearing a suit. Yes, what he's wearing is called an aloha shirt. And you have to realize that Dan does not own a suit. In fact, in Hawaii, the aloha shirt is considered formal wear. So you're really getting the full Hawaiian experience today. He did wear vans instead of slippers this morning. Second, I've known Dan for over 25 years through high school, as college roommates, even into seminary. And he's always been a source of wisdom and encouragement to me. Uh, Once he talked me out of dating a girl. I don't know if he remembers, but he once talked me out of dating a girl not named, you know, Shirley. I think that turned out okay. Another time he told me to not go surfing because I can't swim. And that also turned out to be very wise. But even more, Dan has always pointed me to search the scriptures, to endure in ministry, to love Christ more. And I'm sure that he will do that this morning as he brings us God's word. So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes to this pulpit. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, I did not know that I had saved your pastor's life so many years ago when I told him not to surf. It was actually uh, in the fall of the year, what, 1999, that your pastor actually almost killed me. He uh, had ridden a motorcycle and was showing me this new trick he had learned over the summer of, of popping wheelies. And he flipped his motorcycle and the bike flew in the air past me right before my face and hit a parked car next to me and moved that parked car about 10 feet. And so if I had been about four feet further, I would not be here this morning. But uh, that's the thanks I get for saving uh, your pastor's life. Uh, At this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you. Oh, yeah, you guys don't have chairs in front of you. Bible, and we are in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 uh, through 42 is our passage. And that... Luke 10 and verse 38. And and before we look at the text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, by your grace and kindness, uh, would you please uh, bring us close to you as we open your word? Would you free us from distraction and captivate our attention? And by the Holy Spirit, would you please show to us the surpassing glory uh, of Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, This passage is about the essence of true discipleship and what is uh, really at the core of being a follower of Jesus Christ. The title here is The Cost of Discipleship. That's my mistake. It's actually supposed to be the core of discipleship. And this passage is about that very essence. And this text is coming off of a string of texts which do describe many facets of discipleship. At the end of chapter 9, there is the cost of following Jesus. The first half of chapter 10 
There is a mission and a missional kind of lifestyle that Jesus wants his followers to embody. A simple, focused, dependent, because there's a great harvest of people who do not know him. Midway through chapter 10, we get a little peek at what is behind the curtain, so to speak, that our joy as believers is fueled by this joy within the triune God himself. As Father and Son and Spirit somehow rejoice in the grace of our salvation, being revealed to a people who do not deserve it, that we can get joy by observing God's joy. And it's at the end of chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan that we are reminded that as beautiful as the law can be, it actually and really condemns every single one of us. And we're shown again of our great need of grace that we can't love like the law requires us to love. We really have to be loved uh, by God before we can love in the way that God wants us to. Each of these passages shows to us a different facet of discipleship and, and brings us to see what following Jesus is like from a variety of angles, Uh, but it's in our text this morning that I think we see the very core of it all, the bare bones, the boiler room of what following Jesus is really about. And we have in our text two sisters, Mary and Martha, who I think can both teach us a great deal about this very topic. And so we read in verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I want you to notice first how easy it is to be distracted from the very core and essence of discipleship and not even know it. And to lose our focus on what it is that matters most. Mary is at the Lord's feet, taking in all that she can from Jesus. And Martha is distracted with much serving, even when that serving is for Jesus. Now, Martha gets a bad rap here, and and many commentators and preachers over the years have piled on the abuse, using her as an easy target, as someone not to be like, and undercutting her very character. Uh, But Martha, she is a godly woman. She believes in Jesus. She loves him and is loved by him. Martha is very close to him. She looks like she has an open-door policy with him, that Jesus can come into her house whenever he wants to, and he knows that Martha is always going to welcome him in. We're told in John 11 just how much love is shared between Jesus and Martha and her family. And when the majority of Jesus' superficial followers will scatter and run when the going gets tougher, Martha is not doing that at this point. Uh, She's a godly woman. And Martha's an excellent woman of great hospitality, which is a mark of godliness in Romans 12, 13, and 1 Peter 4, 9, and 10, and so on and so forth. And especially in this day and in this age where preparations had to be done on the spot. It's not like you can make a phone call or send a text to let someone know you're coming over and are about a couple hours away. And so you had to thoughtfully, uh, uh, really intentionally make time to prepare the house on short notice and get ready for guests. And as soon as Jesus enters into this village, as soon as Martha welcomes Jesus into her house and Jesus' followers and whoever else is a part of his entourage. I mean, you try making spur-of-the-moment plans when the house isn't ready. That's normally how you create drama at home. 
And what perhaps makes this hospitality even more gracious is that commentators like Matthew Henry also believe that Martha is a widow, which is why the home is called her home and not her husband's. There's no husband mentioned here, which makes entertaining and feeding and providing even more noteworthy for most widows, if this is the case, were not known to be affluent. It can be expensive to host. Those of you guys who know that, uh, who do that, uh, know the size the bill can quickly become, and, and yet Martha doesn't seem to regard at all the cost of it. There, there's a special kind of worship here that feeds a hungry Christ and hosts our Lord and Savior, who somehow has less than the foxes do, who have holes of their own, and the birds of the air who have nests. In providing for Jesus out of her own potential poverty with exuberance, excitement, and immediacy, we would be wrong to think that somehow Martha here is not a godly and excellent woman. And this is especially more so the case considering the time and being this near to Jerusalem. The scribes and Pharisees and Herodians, all of Judaism's head honchos and even some of Rome's power people, they're gunning for Jesus or they are about to be gunning for Jesus. And with that, there is always a risk involved in welcoming Jesus into your home and being put on a watch list of sorts. You'll remember that Peter gets called out later because a little servant girl around the fire pit recognizes him. I think that guy used to hang out with Jesus. He was known to spend time with him. I saw that man with Jesus. And Peter denies it famously three times before the rooster crows because he will be utterly afraid of even being associated with them. And while Jesus has really been preparing his followers through his teaching for exactly this kind of cost counting, Martha, she still welcomes Jesus into her home, open arms, in addition to his people, into her house without any kind of thought to cost at all. Martha, she loves Jesus. This is a lot of rigorous work. This is a lot of potential cost, and yet serving him is her high joy. I was watching a segment on Honolulu's Little League team coming home with the championship, Go Hawaii. And after being away from the island, it was week after week after week because they kept winning. Uh, The reporter was asking the kids what they did when they first got back. Long flight, you traveled across the country, uh, being away for close to a month. And I think three out of the four kids responded, we went to Zippy's. Zippy's is a famous uh, little diner in Hawaii. The other kid, Kozo Sushi. And that's because they hadn't had any local food at all. They didn't even have any rice for weeks on the mainland, they said. And I really think Martha, uh, she sees Jesus' weariness and, and the rigors of constant ministry And the pressure of it all showing upon his face. And and she's therefore thoughtful to prepare something nice. Because she's cognizant of all that Jesus has been put through. The the ministry, the preaching, the miracles, the crowds, even the animosity and the rejection. And she wants with her all to prepare something to give him joy. And so Martha, she does really want to serve Jesus with all of her being. But even that, brothers and sisters... That's not the main thing. Serving him is not primary. There must come before even that something else. The main thing, the essence, the core, if you will, of discipleship is personified here really in Martha's sister Mary. That as soon as she sees Jesus, she wants to receive everything that she can from him. 
And as soon as he begins to open his mouth to say anything, Mary, with this eagerness, seems to forget everything else. And she's tunnel visioned upon the Son of God that her greatest privilege in this moment is to listen with all of her being at what her Lord has for her to treasure and soak up everything that he is saying. Charles Spurgeon is speaking of this moment. He says this about Mary's mindset. I will worship, I will adore, and every word he utters shall be stored in my memory. She forgot the needs both of the master and his followers for her faith saw the inner glory which dwelt within him. And she was so overpowered with reverence and so wrapped in devout wonder that she became oblivious of all outward things. I mean, she's hanging on every single syllable that comes out of his mouth. There's a reverence and a devout wonder at the person of Jesus uh, in his word that must be central before everything else. Uh, There's a fixation here on him and the teaching coming out of his mouth to get something from him before we can ever give anything back to him. And this is the main thing, uh, RBF family, and the very core of discipleship, not first to serve Jesus, uh, but really to be served by him. To sit in this posture at his feet and to recognize his authority, that every word out of his mouth is what it is that really sustains me. And this is something that in Mary, that even Jesus himself modeled within his own life, That when starving in the wilderness and fasting for weeks, being assaulted by the temptations of the devil for 40 days and the choice between and between bread and hunger, Jesus says there so succinctly in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's something more sustaining about God's word than even a loaf of bread to the famished. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 way back when, which tells us that this has been the case for quite some time, that listening to what God has to say and eating of it is almost everything. That the word of God received into our hearts is the best way to commune with God. And that our greatest needs and sustenance and the satisfaction that our souls require and long for is not to be found in some kind of meal and not to be found in what I can do for him. But to be found by eating up everything that proceeds out of God's mouth. And these are not the only places where we see this. In John 6, 68, Jesus had just preached to the crowds a tough message that their ears did not like and their hearts did not agree with. And many, because they didn't like what they were hearing, they began to leave him. And Jesus there turns to Peter and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you understand how important it is to sit at the feet of our Lord and our Savior and to drink in his teaching and chew upon his word that what Jesus says and what he thinks and what he preaches and what he teaches is absolutely everything. I mean, the entirety of creation as we know it has, has been created by his very word. The physical universe is a testament, a testament to how powerful that word truly is because of the one who speaks it. 
And it can be just as powerful in the hearts of those who want to sit under it. Do you want to sit under Christ's word? I mean, brothers and sisters, this is you. That we want to receive all that God has for us. You know, it seems here uh, to be the air that Mary breathes and the food that she eats and the water she drinks. And this is at the very center point of following Jesus and what makes up the essence of true discipleship. You know, there's something crucial I think we need to understand about uh, discipleship and what it means to follow him. And it's very simple, and yet it is also, uh, at the same time, so often forgotten. That Christianity is, again, first about being served by Christ, rather than it is first serving him. And I think this is where so many of us uh, who do follow Jesus can so easily get it upside down. We're often so focused on what we give, rather than uh, what we get. You remember when Jesus is dressed as a servant, and, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet... And, and the filth of their feet. And, and Jesus is on hand and knee, really dressed like a slave. And he's scrubbing and, and, and cleaning their filth. And then he comes to Peter. And it sounds like I'm picking on him, but I'm not. He comes to Peter, who has left all to follow. And he has pledged his life to Jesus. And he has made all the bold claims of devotion to him. Peter says to him in John 13, 8, You shall never wash my feet. And what does Jesus say in response to him? He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And it's somehow the case that if we cannot allow Jesus to condescend and take our filth into his hands, if our pride cannot allow that, that we put ourselves in the posture of being served by him, then how will it ever be that our hearts can take in the Son of God hanging upon the cross as a criminal so that he might wash us clean by his very own shed blood? Everybody who wants to become a believer has to and must let Jesus cleanse him and wash him and wash us and die in our place. No contribution from us at all. Rise from the grave for us and ascend into heaven only to return again so that we might be with him forever. He does everything. He does all. We only get and get and get. Uh, the gospel is such, I, I saw this clip online. Alistair Begg, he says, if you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? He says, if you answer that, and if I answer that in the first person, uh, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he, because he. Now, this is not only about initial salvation and justification alone, but our entire process of becoming more like him and being sanctified in him is a work that he does in every single one of us. This is why John 15 pictures our relationship with him as us abiding in this life-giving vine. Because that is where we get our vitality and our strength and our life. Because apart from him and severed from him, we can't do anything. Discipleship and following Jesus, Christianity is more about what we receive from him than what we can ever give to him. And Peter in these moments, and this is why we love him, and Martha the same, they want to do more for Jesus. 
And that does come from a somewhat noble heart. I mean, Peter makes promises, even if all fall away, I will not. He's the guy who draws a sword to protect Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the mob comes to arrest him. She's going to clean and prep with urgency just to feed and take care of him and give Jesus a little bit of rest. But so often it is that even the most well-intentioned followers of Jesus can so easily miss what is the main point of following Jesus that we must get from him before we can ever give to him and that the gospel is not ultimately about serving the son of God first but really about being served by the son of God it's being in this posture to receive his grace and undeserved giving in which we are primarily the takers more than we are anything else it's very easy to become distracted from this main thing and this core and this essence and It's Martha here, and you can almost imagine her clanging the dishes and vacuuming all violently and coming out and staring daggers into Mary with her hand on her hip. I'm doing all this work trying to serve you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I'm trying to prepare this for you and help you relax and do this and that for you. And Mary over here, all she's doing is being served by you. Make her help me do something for you instead. And she's got it all backwards and upside down. I don't know if you ever try and wash the car and you're unrolling the hose and you turn the water on full blast. I tell the boys, turn it on full blast. And I pull up the hose and it's just dribbling out. I know there's something wrong. So you trace the hose all the way back and sure enough, there's a kink blocking up that flow because nothing is coming out. I think that's what's happening here with Martha. The text says in verse 40, but Martha was distracted by much serving. There's a kink there. Martha is distracted by Martha and what Martha does and what Martha says. And when our eyes are upon this and that and what I need to do here and there, and I got to prep for Jesus, whom I love, this and over here, that hose becomes just a slow trickle and it dries all up for even the best of us. And then, even with what began with good intentions and a purity of worship, that I really do want to give my all for Jesus and serve him with all of my might. It can quickly get really sour that rather than coming back to the foot of Christ, we can start to dwell on all these potential solutions as to why we're so burnt out and resentful and bitter, angry and easily irritated that this flow is just a trickle. And we can put ourselves into this position where we aren't the one who's wrong, but everyone else is wrong. They really are the ones who are the problem. Notice here that Martha doesn't see any issue in herself. But what does she see? She sees an issue in everyone else, and Jesus included. And it would be one thing if Martha said, Jesus, I would love to sit at your feet too, because that is really the best place for me. But she doesn't actually believe that to be the case in this moment. Martha instead wants to pull Mary out of that place and even boldly command Jesus to tell Mary to do so, so that Mary might become a little bit more like Martha. And that's often the case when the hose does have the kink that we start to get really upset, that we might not even come back to Christ's feet to eat and drink in all that he has for us, but instead we spend our time replaying history, all the ways I'm being wronged, all the ways I am the noble one, the righteous one, and therefore the victim. This is what is called self-pity. And Martha's is such that she actually asked Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior who will die upon the cross for her sin, she actually asks him, Lord, do you not care? 
Can you believe it? All Jesus does is care. But self-pity can be a very uh, powerful thing. And then out of this self-pity, we can so easily breed a resentment in our hearts. And then our solutions become, and we genuinely believe in them, if she would jest, and if he would only, and then my kids would be more like this instead of that. If my husband and my wife were this way and not that way, my boss this, my friends were more blah, 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 and you start praying like that. Lord, change the people around me. God, I, I don't know if you know the situation down here, Lord. As if Jesus somehow doesn't see what you can see. And if Jesus, if he only knew what you know, then he would actually agree with you too. And this kind of bitterness and resentment really drives a wedge in our relationship with other people as we see here. And it drives a wedge in our relationship with God himself. And it is uh, so often within the church that even those with the best of intentions and those who do want to serve can so easily become to be distracted and sulk and spend hours in self-pity and then resentment is spread and self-righteous accusations are thrown around and we come to believe that the real solution to every single one of these issues is that other people really do need to step it up more and they need to be passionate about what I'm passionate about and they need to be a little bit less like them and a little bit more like me. But it is right here in the mirror of Martha and really in the mirror of the scriptures uh, how often it is uh, that we see our own reflection. We're reminded that the real issue is not this, nor is it that. But God, again, is inviting us to where we need to return more and more and more. And these distractions have a way of making our minds go to all the places that are not our real core solution, so much so that we forget altogether the very core of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And to sit at his feet and to drink in all that he has for us. And to know him more and more uh, by his word and therefore be changed. Uh, this is not to deny the uh, complexities of life and, and all of its uh, problems. Martha's issues are real and severe. Uh, I mean, marital issues are real and severe. Relational drama is, can be complicated in families, financial strain out of your control and whatnot. Uh, but underneath any solution must be a realization of what it is that matters most of all. And that is our fellowship with our Lord and Savior, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, many of us here are, are frantic, distracted, uh, worried, busy, and yet at the same time cannot remember the last time we sat down with God's word open and everything else fading to black. I mean, not in a checkmark kind of way. I better read this because my accountability partner is going to ask me. But to be like Mary, that, that somehow nothing else even matters in this moment except for what Jesus has for me. I will worship. I will adore. And every word he utters shall be stored in my memory. For faith sees the inner glory which dwells in him, that we might be so overpowered with reverence and so wrapped in devout wonder that we actually become oblivious to all outward things, that we treasure up every moment and every word that we have from him and of him, even counting every syllable 
as a pearl, Spurgeon says, even when it looks impractical, that this is what is most important to me. You know, if we find ourselves more and more uh, irritated or distracted, you know, that more and more we are actually seeing less problems with ourselves and more problems with everyone else, if we find that we're filled with frustration that leads to even uh, a heated anger and thinking and dwelling and contemplating solutions and shaking our fists at God in a sense because of the situation he puts us in and all the ways other people are making it worse, I think we really do have to come back to what it is that is central. We've got to come back to Jesus' feet. And we need to come to him and receive his ministry and really live by everything that proceeds from him. That our significance and our livelihood is not what we can do, our ability or our utility, but more in what we can get from him. And so it is very easy to be distracted from the very core and essence of discipleship and not even really know it. And to lose our focus on what it is that matters most and to be distracted like Martha, even in good things, even when serving Jesus, when we ought to firstly recognize uh, the simple beauty of sitting at his feet and taking in all that we can from him. We continue in verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Uh, Notice here, how Jesus defends those who have chosen the good portion. How he really justifies those who do prioritize him. And also notice how he gently brings back those who may have wandered from that. First, look at how Martha, uh, Jesus gently brings back Martha. Jesus here, he doesn't meet anger with anger like so many of us can often do. There's a, a tenderness in repeating Martha's name two times. Martha, Martha. And there's a mercy uh, because Jesus does understand how easy it is to become distracted. Uh, You know, busyness in our day and age has has almost become a virtue to brag about. Yes, someone how they're doing, oh, we're so busy. I have this and that, and the kids have this, and we're driving them over here and there, and work is ramped up because of the job, blah, 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 hobbies, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be uh, the case within the church as well that ministry over here and that over there and we have to do this for the summer and then the fall comes and do, 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 do. And there's a way to be very busy for Jesus and not even be taken up by Jesus. And Martha's distraction is actually serving him. It's actually ministering to Jesus, which is a good and noble thing. But this is what often does distract us from the main thing. The good is often the enemy of what is the best. We will frequently not be deciding between abject sin and fellowship with God, but be deciding between good gifts and the giver of them. And over time, ever so subtly, our time with God can be easily squeezed into the margins and everything else is given a greater priority. That this thing is so urgent that this need is so pressing, that if I don't do this, then everything's going to fall apart. But if we take a step back, I think we'll realize more and more that so much of what we categorize as being urgent is really, when all is said and done, relatively unnecessary. I don't know what kind of food Martha made on this day, do you? We don't even know if she was a widow or not. I don't know if she had hardwood floors. 
Probably not. We don't know her SAT score. We don't know her golf game. We don't know her handicap. We don't know her hobbies. We don't know any of that. But there are so many distractions that keep us from seeing and dwelling on the beauty of Jesus as revealed in his word. Everything else is going to pass away. Everything. All of these things will be forgotten. And I think for many of us here, myself included, we need to hear our Savior calling out our name two times so that you might come back to him. Uh, A big part of Christian discipleship is not, it, it is, a big part of Christian discipleship is saying no to sin, no doubt. But I think perhaps an even bigger part of it is also saying no to other good things. Other good things which somehow are in competition with the very best thing. And we each and we all probably already know what some of those things are, if we're honest. I mean, that might be a good discussion on the way home. Ask your little kids, what do you think is most important to mommy and daddy? Where do I spend the most of my time? Ask your spouse, ask your friend. What are the things, good and bad, that really push Jesus into the margins? There are many things within this life which seem at the moment to be so important, which seem at the moment to be so pressing, that seem at the moment to be so urgent, that more and more we condition ourselves. We're spending a day on the baseball field or the soccer field or the gym or watching TV for hours. Netflix binging is common and yet spending even an hour with your Bible open and tunnel vision to Jesus is totally abnormal. We're preparing for worship together on Sunday. is done with leftover effort. The gas tank on knee, the hose kink, detached from the vine, pick your image. It's in these very moments that we need to confess how our paradigms have become so far off. And so Jesus is very gentle in bringing Martha back to him. Be encouraged by that, brothers and sisters. He wants you to come to him. He's not yelling at you or meeting anger with anger. He wants you to come back to him by pointing out just how distracted we can be and anxious and troubled about many things. But notice here also how Jesus defends Mary. You know, in this day and age, uh, normal rabbis wouldn't let women sit at their feet because that was a position reserved for men. And I'm sure that Jesus, having women be equal learners alongside of the disciples, rubbed a lot of Judaism's bigwigs the wrong way. Even Mary could get some meat. Why are you sitting over there? He's supposed to be in the back of the bus. And there will be others who want Mary to get up. Why don't you go help? Why don't you do something a little more tangible than just sitting at Jesus' feet? Do something a little bit more helpful. Can't you be a little bit more practical than simple devotion to Jesus? You're going to spend that big of a chunk of your day tuning everything out just to be with your Savior? Isn't there something more productive for you to do? You know, I think the ones who, who want to spend a lot of quality time with Jesus may also be the very same ones who get attacked for doing so from a variety of people. Because sadly it is uh, so very uncommon for God's people to do this. But Jesus here in our passage, he really does notice those who love to be with him. And Jesus defends those who love to be with him. And he recognizes them before everyone else. That these are the ones. That these are the ones who have chosen the best portion 
the one thing needful, the one thing necessary. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Only one thing is needful. How true that saying. The longer we live in the world, the more true it will appear. The nearer we come to the grave, the more thoroughly we shall assent to it. Health and money and lands and rank and honors and prosperity are all well in their way, but they cannot be called needful. Without them, thousands are happy in this world and reach glory in the world to come. The many things which men and women are continually struggling for are not really necessities. The grace of God which brings salvation is the one thing needful. Let this little sentence be continually before the eyes of our minds. Let it check us when we are ready to murmur at earthly trials. Let it strengthen us when we are tempted to deny our master on account of persecution. Let it caution us when we begin to think too much of the things of this world. Let it quicken us when we are disposed to look back like Lot's wife. In all such seasons, let the words of our Lord ring in our ears like a trumpet and bring us to a right mind. Only one thing is needful. If Christ is ours, then we have all and abound. Isn't it fitting that on Jesus' path to Jerusalem, where he has just a little bit of time with his people left, before his departure, that he impresses the very one thing which is needful, to be at his feet, taking in everything that he has for us, to be in deep fellowship with himself. There's no shame from Jesus when we prioritize him in this way. And there is no regret from his people when they do so. And when the end is near, I think it is that we will look back upon our own lives and wish that we had given Uh, more of ourselves to him. Now before we close, um, I don't think this passage means don't serve the church. I think we're supposed to have the contemplative heart of Mary joined to the industrious side of Martha. But there is an order. And there is that which is just the one thing which is necessary and that which is the very best portion. Would you please join me in prayer as we close. Uh, Father, we ask that you would bring us to yourself and make us a people who long to sit at Christ's feet. Would you, uh, by the Spirit, just bring us closer to him and leave the world behind us and give to us each this uh, worshipful joy that Mary has in this text. Help us, God, uh, in wisdom to make the right decisions in our own lives. Help us to have perspective on what is needful and what is just simply passing and help us cut out even the good things when they compete in our affection to you. Show us the one thing necessary. Strengthen us. uh, Make Jesus Christ everything to us for his glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.